0: Hello, and welcome to Desire to Destiny, a podcast where we explore the mystery behind our deepest desires and how they can make us happier human beings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Larson, but please just call me Doctor. If you've missed any of our previous episodes, I encourage you to find those posted in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to get all our future episodes coming out. A couple months ago, when I was preparing material for this podcast, I was talking to my mom and I told her she would be featured in the intro story. And don't let her tell you otherwise if you know her or talk to her. She was absolutely thrilled to get to uh, have her own story or to have a story told with her in it. And she asked out of curiosity, well, what might that story be? And I told her the same story that I'm about to tell you now. The story happened when I was about four years old. And it became at least the first time in my life that I remember meeting what would become for me a lifelong companion, a companion that you probably know intimately as well, but not one that I would call a friend. It happened like this. I began to realize at that tender age that there were some expectations society was placing on us that were just unreasonable. And the expectation that I realized was unnecessary in my life was specifically the requirement to wear clothing. I couldn't understand why I had to put these drab materials on my body, why I had to limit the God-given freedom that I had been granted to just enjoy life in all its grandeur. And so one day I decided to get rid of uh, these clothes and to live life the way it was meant to be. Not just running throughout my household, but I decided I needed to celebrate this with the community, and so I went. I proceeded to go into uh, my backyard and go onto our jungle gym swing set that we had in the backyard, and in my birthday suit, to swing back and forth and play on the play set and wave at cars as they pass by, honking no doubt their appreciation for. Um, my spiritual liberation, my recognition of what life was intended to be. I knew, uh, perhaps not at that age, but at least sometime later, I learned from the story of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis that when they were first created, it is said of them, they were naked and unashamed. And I knew this was a return to that kind of glory. Unfortunately, my mother was not as spiritually advanced as I was at that young age. And she felt differently about this. When she saw what I was doing, she grabbed me, rushed me inside, and delivered a swift spanking to my already bare posterior. um, Which was, you know, made much easier since there was no clothing to stop her. You could do that uh, back then. You can't get away with it the same now. But at that time, it was an acceptable way to correct your child. And I recall that as she was uh, administering this discipline, in my mind, I, I was singing this song of faith that I was familiar with. It comes from the story of Daniel in the lion's den, uh, when he was thrown in there, uh, another biblical story. And in my mind, I was singing, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, dare to make it known. This would help me to uh, to make it through the threats of my mother that this should never happen again. So I I told this story to my mom, much in the way that I'm telling it to you right now. And I said, Do you remember the incident? And she sighed and said, Yes, of course, I remember the incident. I said, Do you, you remember your response? And she said, I, I suppose that's something that I, I probably would have done. And I said, Well, what, what about now? I mean, what, what would you say to me right now if uh, little four-year-old me, uh, not nearly 40-year-old me, did this, but if little four-year-old me did this and you were uh, there once again having to correct me, what would you say when you caught me in this situation? And without missing a beat, she said to me, I would say, shame on you. I said, oh, isn't that perfect? I said, because this story is going to be shared in an episode that's called exactly that, shame on On you. And that was it. That is, at least to my memory, the beginning of my relationship with shame. And I should be clear that I don't mean to say this in a completely negative sense. There's been a lot of conversation in the last, I don't know, decade or so about shame. Uh, People like Brene Brown have made it a more common conversation topic for each of us to talk about, and there's been a lot of books and research to follow uh, in her footsteps in many ways. But shame is just a part of our lives, a part of every one of our lives. While we often think of the negative impacts of shame and the negative results of letting shame have a strong voice in our lives, the truth is that shame has both negative and positive attributes and features in helping protect our well-being. I like what Dr. Kurt Thompson has to say about this in his book, Soul of Shame. In it, he writes, It is crucial to note from the outset that shame, as a neurophysiological phenomenon, is not bad in and of itself. It is rather our system's way of warning of possible impending abandonment. And a good example of this would be what a young child, even earlier than the age of four, like in the story I described earlier, a a toddler, you know, 18 months, two years old, what they could experience if they started to wander towards a busy street and their parent instinctively responds, no. Um, They don't give any explanation and the child at that age wouldn't even really be able to appreciate an explanation. All they know is this dreaded sense of something is very wrong between me and between uh, the the figure in my life that is most important, my mother, my father. Um, and what happens then is that the child turns and looks for some sort of indication of where the relationship is at or why there is such a response. And it's crucial for there to be a follow-up to that, that the, the event that created the shame, there needs to be then some form of attunement, as uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson talks about in his book, and so, you know, a, a mother or father might scare the child in stopping them from getting in the street, but they'll quickly pull the child back in and hug them and reassure them and say, you know, something that's not safe to go there. And again, depending on the age of the child, they they may not understand the explanation. They probably won't if they're young enough, but they will remember the feeling that came with it. They will remember that they felt shame in going in that direction and they will now have these proper boundaries placed around them. I'm not going to go this direction anymore. Where the real problem comes with in regards to shame is when that relationship is not returned to, when that attunement does not happen, when there's no repair in it. And instead, it leads us to further isolation and to hiddenness, to deceit that breaks down all the things that we need in a healthy relationship. And all joking aside uh, about my early encounter, well, I did learn about shame when I was that four-year-old boy. Um, It it wasn't in a a negative sense. I needed to learn the proper boundaries to keep my clothes on. And I think I'm a much more productive member of society because I've learned that lesson and I dress myself before I go out in public. Unfortunately, these shame-inducing experiences that we have far more often carry with them a devastating weight, and they carry with them a voice that tears us down rather than just builds us up by protecting us with these appropriate boundaries. I think of a a moment that I experienced a few months back walking through Barnes & Noble, and I overheard a mother talking to her, I don't know, maybe a five-year-old girl about getting uh, some toy or book or other game that the little girl wanted to get. And the mom replied to her, well, maybe I would get it for you if you didn't lose interest in things like every five minutes. Um, And she continued to go on this line and talking to the little girl. Now, as a parent, I I get it. I know that there's different times that I have bought things for my kids that they were so excited about, said, I can't wait to have it. I can't wait to get it. And Before long, it's just sitting in a corner and they're not doing anything with it, sometimes within minutes after getting it home. So the mom wasn't necessarily wrong, but I just couldn't get over how it felt hearing those words uh, for me and how I imagine it might have felt for that five-year-old and then how I felt about the times when I had spoken that way to one of my kids who was very excited about something and expressing to me something they're passionate about and they're interested in, uh, and then for me to shut them down like that. And this is where the conversation about shame comes back around to the conversation we've been having about desire. Because just as shame is something we experience from the youngest of ages, Desire is something that is deeply embedded in each one of us. We've gone over this in some of the past episodes, and you know by now if you've been following along or if you go back and listen that my contention is that desires at their purest form are a good thing. They're something that motivates and empowers us towards finding and pursuing a life of happiness, happiness in a deep and meaningful sense, not just in a fleeting, pleasure-oriented sort of way, but deep and abiding happiness. But as deep as these desires are, the shame comes along and and is a part of our experience from the get-go. And as it turns out, there's a, a really negative impact that shame can have on desire. In the last couple weeks, we've been spending some time in the early chapters of the biblical book of Genesis, and we return to that now uh, in, in illustrating some of this confusion that shame brings to the picture when it comes to our desire. You may recall from earlier in the episode that I mentioned a story in the beginning of Genesis about Adam and Eve, where it was said of them, they were naked and unashamed. This lead-in is crucial for the story that we're going to, about to look at because it leads to a punchline, a, a pivotal question that God asks that is strange in so many ways. And, and that question is simply this, who told you you were naked? But the real punch behind that question comes from following the story that leads up to it. You see, we've already gotten past the point where uh, God puts order into the universe. We've gotten past the point where, where God establishes that this is a world to be ruled by humanity, by Adam and Eve that he has created, by man and woman. They have been given the invitation, the responsibility to now reign over this planet, to create out of it what they might desire. And as a symbol of that, God has, has placed them actually in a garden that is full of all sorts of things they could delight in. And over and over again, God has been affirming humanity's desires by inviting them into meaningful relationships and vocations and opportunities for enjoyment of all different kinds. And now they're placed here in this garden, full of opportunity to fulfill those desires to their heart's content, Uh, with one notable exception, something that is called the tree of knowledge and good and evil. God says that is not for you to participate in. Now, if you've been following our conversation so far in this episode, you realize that this is an opportunity for shame. Because it's a boundary, because it's a line that is not to be crossed, that is not healthy or safe to be crossed, because it's a limit that's been put in place, it is an opportunity now for somebody to say, maybe, maybe I'll push that. Maybe I'll go a little further. Maybe this is something that is good for me. And so God, in doing this, has said, here's a world full of the opportunity to enjoy all that you can desire, but just trust me on this one, this place is going too far. This is a place that you do not want to be. And since shame is that that response within us that is the fear of abandonment, then even looking in the direction of that tree, even contemplating going there is the recognition that if I were to go that way there would be separation in the relationship between me and God. And for Adam and Eve, they may have also thought separation in the relationship between one another. This tree represents the opportunity for shame to come into the picture. And even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, you probably know where this story ends up. You've heard about uh, about the serpent. You've heard about Adam and Eve, about forbidden fruit, and that kind of a thing. But here's where the setup is. The setup is that, you know, Eve comes to this tree one day, she stumbles upon it, she gets into a conversation with a talking snake in a tree who's, you know, asking her these leading questions. Did God actually say that that you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? Um, and Eve is quick to correct that and say, no, no, we, we can eat of anything we want except this one. We're not supposed to eat from it. We're not supposed to touch it. And the conversation continues. And The serpent starts to point out the different beautiful features of the fruit and the tree and uh, attempts to poke holes in the logic uh, of God who put this limit, this boundary on Eve. And as the conversation unfolds, she comes to this conclusion. And as Genesis reads, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of the fruit and ate. And do you hear what is happening there, what is playing out in this sequence. Eve is assessing what has been made available to her. And in this light, in this light where she says that the tree's good for food, it's delightful to look at. Um, it can make one wise because, uh, you know, the snake is sitting here talking to me and seems to be pretty smart then she says, why wouldn't I eat it? I mean, think about it. Why, why shouldn't she eat it? Why shouldn't she desire wisdom? God has literally appointed her the queen of the earth. Wisdom, Wisdom is a virtue she cannot live without. And you can almost sense in this progression as she's pondering, how she will enjoy something she hasn't enjoyed before, how she will become wiser, how she will progress in so many ways. You can sense this kind of sinister voice in the background, take the fruit, Eve, and fulfill your destiny. This is such a powerful example, then, of the deceptive capacity of shame because it turns the story around. Where desire was once a friend that God had put in Eve to say, yes, you you are to rule the earth, you are to enjoy the great pleasures of, of, of relationship and exploration and, and, and all these things that God had given to her and had given to Adam. Now, instead, those desires are being used against her. They're being used to convince her that, number one, she needs to draw herself away from the trusting guidance of God. She needs to put distance between her and God because obviously God doesn't have her best interest in mind. And secondly though, and more pervasive, more um more insidious is this insinuation that somehow Eve is not enough. Uh, she is inadequate. And and not only that, but God cannot be trusted to care for those needs that she might have. The only way that she's going to find them is if she ventures away from that relationship. But the but the real sinister aspect is to say you're not enough. You're really not enough. You, you need something more. That's the temptation that's going on here. And so then when Adam repeats this experience on his own, I mean, we can be sure there's a similar process at play. There's more in the conversation that's recorded about Eve, but, but I can imagine that as he's thinking through it, as, as she's then offering the fruit to him in turn, he's going through this thought process, I, I don't want to be lonely. I don't want to miss out. I don't, I don't want this to separate us. Um, maybe he wonders. He says, I, I, don't, I won't be enough for Eve if I don't do this. I won't be enough without Eve if I lose her. And suddenly, suddenly this fruit goes from being undesirable to being irresistible. He must have it. And so he eats. And this is the moment when it's recorded that the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. What a setup for the moment that's to come, because God, who is still pursuing relationship with them, begins to wander in the garden in the cool of the day and comes out looking for them. But they're hiding. They're hiding in their clothes now. They're hiding in the bushes. They're trying to keep their distance because what they did not anticipate with shame is that when it starts to come in and play tricks on our desires, and when we start to listen to that voice of shame, it leads to this isolation. It leads to this separateness. And God then comes and discovers them and asks this odd question, who told you you were naked? They tell him, you know, we're hiding because we were afraid because we're naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? What then would this question mean in this context? Well, obviously what what we have going on here, what has led them down this path is this lie that they are inadequate, that they are not enough. So what God is asking them is, who told you you were inadequate? Who told you you weren't enough? Who told you 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 were not worthy or sufficient? Who has brought this lie into your heart? As we already know, desire is a strong force that moves us towards action and helps us pursue the joy God created us for. But when shame comes in, it corrupts our thinking. It, it confuses our pursuit of these desires. Suddenly, meeting desires is not simply a means of finding happiness. It's a means of proving our self-worth. And so then, if I, if I don't have my my father's approval, I'm not worthy. If I don't get that promotion, I am not worthy. If I don't get into an Ivy League school, I'm not worthy. If I if I don't um, have the acceptance of my friends or make uh, enough money, I'm not worthy. And while the fulfillment of desires as a means for happiness is a healthy part of being human, the fulfillment of desire as the foundation of our self worth self worth is a pathway to our destruction. But this is the deception that shame feeds upon this idea that, you know, you're you're just not, you're not worthy unless you have these different things that are fulfilling you. And then through this deception, shame creates distance in the place of intimacy, suspicion in the place of trust, and hiddenness in the place of honesty. And every pursuit of desire becomes contaminated by the presence of this negative expression of shame. To help visualize the presence of shame, I like to think Back to that image of the wild things uh, from the book, Where the Wild Things Are, as being the desires within us that we are seeking to understand and come at peace with so we can live a a happy life with our desires. If that's the case, then shame could be, uh, again, borrowing from the ideas from Dr. Kurt Thompson's book, Soul of Shame, could be thought of as kind of a shame attendant, as another companion, as I mentioned earlier in this episode one that is constantly with us to offer us advice, except that this attendant is not doing so in a helpful way. Thompson explains in his book how shame disintegrates the processes in the brain. It it keeps each of the different parts of the brain from functioning in the way that they're intended to, and it also messes with the process of different parts of the brain uh, speaking with each other, communicating with each other to uh, help Move us towards cohesive action. In that sense, then, he looks at shame as being this kind of uh, actual force in our lives, what he calls the shame attendant. And he says, It's like our shame, like our attendant is waiting to offer advice, suggestions, and reflections with the intended purpose of disintegration, the intended purpose of just taking us apart, isolating us, making us uh, think in ways that are unclear and interact in ways that are unhealthy. He says, Shame lurks in our bedroom your wardrobe, or your bathroom, especially the one with really big mirrors. When we wake up each morning, our attendant greets us with the words, Wow, you really didn't get enough sleep last night. What were you thinking? You move to the bathroom to take a shower and are reminded that you look like you've put on more weight. You get in your car to go to work and your attendant whispers that the conversation you have scheduled with your difficult client is going to go poorly because you are ill-prepared. Later that day as you are bored at work and your mind drifts off to the beach where you would rather be you hear that you won't ever have the job you really desire. And the truth is that whether these are the particular things you hear or not every one of us has the shame attendant. Every one of us has this voice that leads us to question our self-worth that feeds on these ideas of insecurity and our own inadequacies that uh, just says you, you're not valuable enough. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You're not likable enough. And it, it leads to us question ourselves. And of course, questioning our desires. Are they really worth trying for? Are they really wor- worth going after? And so some of us will set desires, different ambitions um, to achieve enough to be accepted or to please others enough to, to be accepted and to be acknowledged, or whatever it might be to help try to feed that sense of our own value. Um, And we can't escape this entirely. Shame is there and it is present. But the the good news is that this is not the end of the story. The truth is that as pervasive as shame is, and as early as it comes into our personal stories, desires run much deeper. Uh, As we talked about a little bit in the last episode, Uh, They are key indicators of our unique personalities. Each one of us has them in different versions. And the stories that we've looked at, the the affirming stories about the reality of our being say that these desires were put here in us as an act of love, whether they're called the madness of the gods or something uh, created by a loving God that placed them in us. These desires are meant to move us towards a life of meaning and purpose and happiness. And if we would do the work to really get to know these desires, and if we do the work to tune out uh, this voice of shame that tears us apart, then happiness is something that is within our reach, and fulfillment is something that is within our reach. Um, But it takes putting in the effort to do so, and a couple of things can really help us in this regard. First, I'll come back to a point which I've already made multiple times in the other episodes, but bears repeating, and that is simply this. Desires in their purest form are a positive aspect of our humanity. Uh, They are something that can motivate us and empower us to attain goals which will increase not just our happiness, but the happiness of those around us. But what often happens is we begin to see somebody engaging a less pure form of their desire or acting in a way that is unhealthy, probably laced with shame in the way that they're actually enacting it. And we get frustrated and immediately assume that the desire itself is bad. So for example, we see somebody who's in charge, we don't like the way they're behaving, we don't like the way they're treating those that are under them, and we say, oh, they're just power hungry, which might be true. Uh, And maybe the way they're expressing it is a negative thing, but the assumption that comes along with that is that power itself is a bad thing. And as we talked about in the last episode, it's one of those universal basic desires that people, there are some people in which it's stronger than others, have a longing for power, a longing for influence. But this can be a very good thing. Uh, We as people often need a leader to look to. We need somebody to help organize and direct us. And because of that, it's great to know that some people just actually want to be in a leadership position. Because frankly, many others do not. Um, But power itself is not the bad thing. It's often the way shame is speaking into that, so that it creates anxiety, it creates separation, the inability to relate, and somebody becomes fixated on a result that simply is not going to get them where they need to get. And it's not truly the fulfillment of that pure desire, or of that desire in its purest form. Now, I realize that trying to nail down your desire in its purest form can be a daunting task. And that's why I would suggest to you the second part, which is a a simple practice, um, a practice of vulnerability that can be instrumental in silencing the voice of shame in your experience and helping you get more in touch with your desires and with uh, who you really are meant to be. Now, I realize that trying to identify your desire in its purest form can feel like a daunting task. And that's why I would suggest to you a a simple practice that I think every one of us uh, needs to engage in that can be so valuable in discerning what it is we really desire and want out of life, what it is that's deep within us, as well as helping us live a life free of the influence of shame and the negative impacts that that voice has on on us. And that practice is simply this, to tell your story, to tell the story uh, of your true and authentic experience with life, uh, with God, with those around you, um, to just have those people who you can trust with all of the glory details of your life and all the gory details of your life, the ups and the downs, the ins and the outs. And whether that begins by sitting in a room with a counselor or a spiritual director or uh, somebody of that nature, or, or whether you have a trusted group of friends that you can share with, uh, or or if it is for you, uh, you know, an AA meeting, whatever the forum might be, that you would take the chance of sharing the story of your authentic experience in life, uh, of giving up some of these even secrets that maybe you've held onto and hidden because you were so ashamed. Some of these messages that you have believed, some of these inadequacies that you've been trying to hide. What you'll find when you do this is that you begin to reconnect. You begin to become integrated once again in your mind, in your body, in your spirit. You're set free from the things that cause shame. You'll find that you begin to discover those desires and you begin to see them in their purest form. And as you get in touch with those, you'll find not only the connection that comes with being seen and being known by another and being fully accepted, but you'll begin to see clearly the path before you. You'll understand how your desires, appropriately engaged, can put happiness within your reach. So I hope that whoever you find uh, that you can trust it with, that you will tell your story, that you'll let your voice be heard, and that you'll make sure that shame does not have the last word. Well, that's all for this time look for our next episode dropping in two weeks. In the meantime, I'd always love to hear from you. You can leave comments on the show's page in iTunes or on the Ramada.org website. That's r-h-e-m-a-t-a.org. Or you can email your thoughts to me at desire to destiny at Ramada.org. And if you'd like to help support the production of this podcast, you can give at www.ramada.org backslash give. Until next time, peace and love, everyone.